Elite Physique University, your source for all things physique enhancement. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Elite Physique University. I'm John Gorman, your host. We're here at the first ever Elite Physique University seminar. Make some noise, everybody. That's called FOMO, fear of missing out, and I know you guys are experiencing that right now. We've got Jason Theobald in the house. Jason, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah. Yeah. This is fucking weird sitting in front it of 50 people weird. trying yeah. to record a podcast. We'll, we'll get used to it real quick. Yeah. So this layout's going to be fun today. We're not going to cover what's new with us or anything like that. Uh, we do have 50 attendees here from all over the place. Yeah. We've got D.C., we've got California, we've got Louisiana, we've got Texas, we've got local people. Virginia, like all over the place. Um, so these people are going to ask questions, and then we're probably just going to repeat it because it's going to be hard to pick up. So um, Ryan, go ahead and go to the first person with a question. You know, Jason, while he's getting to people, we had a great seminar. We had six full classes. We covered a lot of stuff. You just covered gut health. Um, how tired are you after a weekend of, uh, <laughs> of brain gains? Um, yeah, it's an understatement, but, you know, I'm doing all right. Uh, yeah. I lost my words a few times there, yeah. but uh, I'm doing all right. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. You know, normally we do something. We have six different presenters. You present yeah. once. You get to hang out and talk to everybody. I've never had to present. You know, three times and you three times in a Q and A. So it's yeah. it's a little brain mush for a little bit, but it's it's fun. So we really oh, appreciate. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, we appreciate you guys coming out for this. So let's get started with our first question. Um, John, when you were talking about the unicorn approach um, earlier in your presentation of adding carbs and then hit sessions and then pulling out, pulling out all the other cardio, um, we kind of talked to you afterwards about, you know, for people in keto, if that would be something that you would think about, we could play around with maybe adding some carbs or some fats instead of carbs. Yeah, so the question is real quick is it's a lot of it comes down to reverse dieting. So when someone you're trying to reverse diet someone up and you, they still have weight to lose, there is a way, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, that you can add carbs back in to get people to continue to drop weight as long as they're sticking to the plan. Well, what if someone's keto? Well, you can't really raise their protein. You can't really raise carbs because they're keto, so can you raise fats? So I've never done this before. So what happens is when someone's calories are low, you still need to reverse diet. So you still need to add fats in. But fats aren't something that you're going to get a huge thermic effect from or a big boost in leptin or anything like that. But at some point, you're going to have to try and add it. Now, I would cycle, uh, for the listeners that weren't here, we're talking about cycling cardio in and out. I would still try cycling the cardio in and out and try and burn it off because they're in a fat-burning state. And depending on the person, if you want, I think this might actually be a great place for injectable L-carnitine on, on a keto diet. What do you think? I mean, I think any place is a great place for injectable L-carnitine. Right. I think it would work. I think it would work well there. I mean, it's going to improve insulin sensitivity. So if they haven't been using it, you know, that's going to kick up. And then they're just going to burn more fat at rest, you know, as a fuel source. Right. So, and then you could still like bump fats there and get that at least thermic effect from calories. And then you add that injectable L-carnitine and you're just going to be, because a lot of times when people add that, they get warm. Yeah. You know, they talk about sweating and I'm warm and, you know, because everything's just improving. You're more right. efficient. So sure. I, I, I would do that and I would try cycling that and I would try the, the carnitine. So good question. Keto, and I know we'll get some keto questions. Keto is kind of a way different approach. A lot of people don't get it. And there's some limitations there as well. And part of that is 
you just don't get a, a big boost in metabolism like you do compared to carbs. So, all right, who's got the next question? I had a question on uh, blood glucose levels and rising blood glucose levels in the AM. So some individuals I might be going to bed, let's say 90, 92, 94, but I'm waking up 1, 115 higher than that. Kind of what protocols would we, you could kind of run through to actually bring that down? Okay, so the question is, is what if someone's blood glucose is still high in the morning? And a lot of times even we've tried to fix it and it's still high. What are some of the protocols and, and steps that, that we do if you want to take that one? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things going on there. Uh, a lot of times it's a cortisol stress, ish, stress issue. Um, so there's a couple of ways you can handle that. I mean, you could have carbs pre-bed if their if they're pro program permits. Um, you know, you can just move them from another meal. Like maybe you have carbs at meal two, you can move those to, you know, their last meal or something. And then that, that's going to bring, you know, cortisol down just from having carbohydrates pre-bed. Um, you could also use like our, one of our products like Cordy's. I, I, do you have a cortisol product now too? No, I've got a little bit of ashwagandha in mind, okay. but I sell your Cordy's yeah. just for that. So, exactly. I mean, you could, you could hit them with a cortisol product too, but it's known as Dawn Effect. And that's what's going on. It's, it's, it's cortisol a lot of times. Uh, spiking and causing you to basically release carbohydrates into the bloodstream to wake you up, but it's just it's more than what the person needs. And so you bring that cortisol down either through supplementation or carbohydrates, and a lot of times you can you can fix it. What else I've seen work, and and it's it's not really fixing the problem, but what's interesting is um, I've seen people just get up and drink 12 ounces of water and retake the test, and it's back into the 90s. I don't know why. I mean, I guess it's dehydration as part of it. Um, I, cause I know like when I used to check, um, my blood glucose a lot when I was peaking, um, I don't do it as much anymore cause I know my body very well, but I would check my blood glucose to make sure I was ready for a meal when I was peaking, you know? So if I'm at 110, I'm not ready for a meal. If I'm at 80, I'm ready to eat and I'm not going to spill. Um, but I would find as I got dehydrated or as I used a diuretic, my blood sugars would stay higher even though I knew I was starving and ready for a meal. So that dehydration can be part of it as well. Yep. There's there's a couple other things too that that you know beyond that all and we've talked about this on the podcast. I think it was episode nine, insulin sensitivity. You can start to check them, you know, three four hours after a meal, and if they're still high in the morning, but they're sitting great three to four hours after their meals, I don't worry so much yep. at that point. Really um, you gave me the idea three years ago to maybe pop a glucose disposal agent before you go to bed to kind of clear out yep. first thing in the morning. Um, but a lot of that stuff's fixed by proper sleep and things of that nature to, to help drive cortisol down. But I always make sure that they're good in, you know, before their next meal. And if they're good there, I feel much, much better about it because that's what they're experiencing all day. So it's, it's a complicated um, topic, but I used to freak out because I was doing everything right. Yeah, I was only measuring picture. in the morning. Yeah, right. you got to look at that postprandial, you know, two and a half hours post meal too and see where they're at. And, you know, if they're, they're good, you know, two and a half hours after their meal, they're coming back down. It's really, like you said, not a huge deal. And they'll probably have a great A1C then. You, if, I don't know if you use A1C, but that's like the three-month average of someone's blood glucose. So you can check that in labs. So even if they're having the Dawn phenomenon, which I get it, um, if their A1C is great, you know, 5.3 or lower, it, it's really not a huge issue. But some of those things I told you will fix it if you just want it to look prettier, but it's not a huge issue if all those other things are okay. What was the number you gave again? 5.3 or lower on an A1C. And that's a three-month average of uh, blood glucose. Yeah. 
I go one one other thing too, and it's the most simplest thing. But I when I don't tell people, it comes back. I tell people finger clean your finger with an alcohol wipe, mm-hmm. then check it because when people first start, if they've never really done it themselves, I never did. Whenever I started like ten years ago, when Mark yeah. was yeah. helping me, I just prick my finger. Well, shit, if you've already eaten or if you have just a little bit of stuff, like you it'll touch throw your it kitchen off. counter and it has a little sugar or yeah. anything from it. So make sure that's happening too. So good question. Who's next? This is a question for John. Uh, why do you prefer to use carbs nightly to be spread throughout the week uh, versus using a box pack weekly? Okay, good, good question. I know we're both going to have a good take on this because um, the question was, why do I personally prefer my car? If someone's going to do two carb ups a week, why do I prefer to spread them out? Like maybe a Sunday and Wednesday versus a lot of other people. And even the research I was involved with packs them back to back, like maybe a Sunday and Monday. Um, this is my take. I'd be curious to kind of see what you talk about. I don't think we've touched on this once, but here's, here's my reasoning. A lot of it comes down to two things, being a little bit depleted and insulin sensitivity. So to have a carb up, you need to be depleted. So if you're dieting, right? So if you're depleted, if you have a carb up on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, if you're back to your normal deficit diet and you train, you deplete the muscle, then you can carb load again, right? So it makes sense. Your, your insulin sensitivity is better. You're more depleted. But if you do it back to back, if you carb up on Sunday, well, when you carb up, your insulin sensitivity is not as good the next day because you're carbed up. So why would you want to carb up back to back days? It depends on the size of the carb up, obviously, right? So like we don't want to do two free meals back to back. But to me, it's always made more sense. Why don't we do it when insulin sensitivity is the best? So why not spread it out? But then there's other other factors and other good reasons to do them back to back too. So I mean, what's your take on that? For someone healthy and moving along right, I agree with John and I agree that, you know, you would have like every three days would have a refeed and then the second day or every two days you'd have a refeed. So, but um, I use a back to back when I have, generally it's females who have issues with cortisol. Um, Maybe they've had hormone problems and I fixed them and now we're dieting. I will do two refeeds back to back and um, I'll rest them completely. And I just call this cortisol reset days. And we might take in 220 grams of carbs both days. Uh, Cordy's or just ashwagandha, whatever budget we'll afford. Um, every two to three hours, three to four hours is fine. Um, and they do nothing. And then for five days, carbs come down and we burn fat. And I found that to work very well. I used it with Leslie when she was doing you know, prep and you know, was, just does a lot of activity. Um, and so if you have that cortisol issue or you have the person who has that cortisol dominant response, um, I've found the back-to-back refeeds work really well and, um, and kind of controlling that and allowing the fat loss where it was stalled. Yeah. Have you done more than two? Have you ever done multiple, multiple days? Only when they're really stalled out. Okay. But like, you know, when, if I'm doing it as a program, it would be two days and then five days of burning fat, two days of rest, eating carbs, burning yeah. fat. Yeah. Let me take it one one. Further, um, I mostly, when I prep someone, most people, I'd say 90% right now, I don't do two carb ups a week. I do one. I have a deficit for That's six days. That's where I days. start because last time you have more do? fat on you. Yeah. But if someone gets more depleted and leaner, then they might need more, more yeah. days. Yeah. yeah. And you get that the two boosts in leptin. So when you get leaner too, your leptin lowers like we talked about yesterday. Why not get two boosts? And then that comes back to the last reason is why boost leptin two days in a row? And have it lower for five days. Why not give it a little boost, 
deplete a little bit and then give leptin metabolism a little bit of a boost. And that's, that's actually the next step in the research that Bill Campbell and people at USF we've talked about is now comparing to what I was talking about and then what you're talking about or like comparing what they did with two back to back refeeds. Now we need to see comparisons in leptin a little bit more and, and spread the refeeds Three out. and four days. Or now, now like that, that we know refeeds are really, really good. Yeah. yeah. Now, now we need to study different refeeds and stuff like that, but yeah. it's just a process. It takes time, but it's kind of my bro logic that, to me makes sense and it's worked. But it is good to know, like I start out with one refeed a week, usually two with people because most people, they have enough body fat to feed, you know, they're not going to lose muscle. But yeah. um, those cortisol resets really get important when you have had people who have hormonal issues prior um, or just are kind of cortisol dominant. You know, I have, I have a lot of women who I'll get their cortisol down and then we'll literally start training good again and we'll diet a little bit and it's back up over the twenties and it's like, it's a repeating pattern. So I use that, Two days of high carbs, cordies every three to four hours, and you do nothing. And then you get back to it for five days, and it works well. They progress, um, and it keeps cortisol down better. We're going to cover that in detail. Like we just, It's on my list, but we really yeah. need to get to that. More that you're getting really dialed in with it, and yeah. we just need to cover it. So well, who's got the next question? Okay, so I had a question for Jason because um, in that last section we went through a whole lot of gut health type of stuff, um, and you were talking about like um, when you're trying to help somebody that you use the FODMAP and yeah. those foods. Um, my question is, is like the adherence, and we've talked about that kind of thing. How important is it, like once you're starting somebody trying to heal their gut, like what happens if we go four days and they're following the FODMAP and stuff like that, and then day five, they go out and just kill whatever they had, you know, burgers, fries, pizza, whatever, ice cream at a party, then getting back on track, it, are, there, are they messing things up or do you say, hey, I need you eight weeks of dialing in and giving me like completely adherence to the FODMAP? Yeah, I'm really blunt with people and okay. so I say, I need eight weeks or this okay. isn't going to freaking work Okay. and I don't really need to, I'll just bring on a client that's going to do it right, okay. um, but that's me. Um, you can be smoother with it, but I, I just let it be known. Like this is, you can't sit and eat pizza and drink beer every four days and fix a gut. Like it's just not going to work. But you know, if someone just screws up, you know, it's not a pattern. I, you know, I'm saying, I just remind them that, look, we just got to get back on track and then, you know, let's not do this again. But if it becomes a pattern, I'm like, I can't help you if this is a pattern because we got to have consistency because if you don't get the inflammation down, the mucosal lining is not going to fix and all these different things that are already a problem. So if it's a pattern, I get stern. If it's one time, I just say, look, it's not going to kill us. Let's get back at it. So just kind of see what they're kind of doing with you. Yeah. Who's next? Um, we talked a lot about competitors over the last two days, and so this is a general population question. Um, I've had good success with what I would consider more of the type A driven individuals, you know, like let's diet for 12 weeks and we can, you know, lose some weight. But with clients who need to lose, say, 50 to 80 pounds, I've had less success. And so I guess curious on if you take a different approach and kind of when you have somebody who it's, it's a long game, you know, and they really have to make a lot of changes to their lifestyle, how you get them to commit to that for the period of time it's going to take. So the ultimate goal, and let me repeat that. So when you have somebody that has a lot of weight to lose, I think you used 80 pounds as an example, but they want to get to stage, correct? No. Just general pop. Okay, and then say the rest of it again. We're like, I just haven't had success with those people 
adherence. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, the question is, sorry, I was trying to post a video. <laughs> and um, the question is basically when you have someone has to lose a lot of weight and they have problems with adherence, how do we help with that? So is one of the problems just, are they wanting to count their macros? Do they count that? Like what, what problems are you running into? Just adherence. I mean, maybe having like one week that they're on the diet and then feeling like, gee, I didn't lose six pounds. So like, forget this, you know? Okay. So they're, yeah, they're having trouble with adherence and they're falling off the plan. Right. Cheating on the plan and stuff like that. Okay. So here's the thing. It goes back to being blunt. Like you just said earlier, um, I'm blunt, but I'm not, I'm not rude. Neither yeah. you, no. we're not rude, but that goes a long way. Like it goes a long way and it's easier being a guy. I mean, it just is. We had that talk with, you know, with somebody in the back that we're looking at, I'm not going to name her, but that needs to be blunt with a client. <laughs> she sees yeah. us right now. Um, it's just, but it's, it's, it's easier being a guy cause we can just be straightforward, but you have to be straightforward with them and you have to remind them. It's kind of like the gut health thing. You have to remind them you hired me to fix your gut or you hired me to help get 80 pounds off of you or your doctor sent you here because you're pre-diabetic or whatever that you have to remind them of that. And then what I tell them, first of all, I get most of my money up front, right? Because that helps people stick to the plan. I'm not big on paying per month and stuff like that. And we can talk about that later because I know someone has a question about that. But I get their money up front, and that's because I need them to stay with me so I can fix them. So then they tell other people about me. It's the right business move, but it's best for them. So what I do is I bring it back to them. I say, listen, you paid me. Don't waste your money. Don't waste our time together. I need you to stick to the plan, and you've got to trust it. You didn't gain all – and this is classic. You didn't gain all that weight in a week. You're not going to lose it all in a week, Right. But I'm just straight up front and blunt with them. And I can tell you nine times out of ten people thank me. You probably get the same thing. They thank me. Um, and then one other thing happens too is the plan, especially for Gen Pop, we're different because, you know, we've all competed. Most of us have competed, right? We ha Sometimes we have to switch that mindset. And the plan has to be something they can adhere to. So if I try and find out what the holes are. So if they're not adhering to it, so why aren't they? Do they need a free meal a week? Do they need those days? Do they only need to work out four instead of the six that I'm trying to make them work out, right? Because my job is to create a plan that they can adhere to, not try and force them to adhere to a plan that they can't stick to, right? And too many coaches that we know, man, especially at prep world, like they're mm -hmm. like, you have to do this it way. this yeah. way. And at some point in prep, you have to, but you have to really kind of mold yourself around them. So, And the last piece I would add, you know, if someone doesn't lose weight in a week, but, you know, they are sleeping better or their digestion's better or their energy's better or their libido's better, anything, remind those that those are wins too, you know, um, and it's not going to be a linear drop to the finish line. You know, there are going to be weeks where they don't drop weight, but if other biofeedback is improving, that is still a win. So if you can get them looking at that too, that helps because like I deal with a lot of people in healing, right? And so we're not dropping scale weight, you know, but I, we're looking at other markers. And once you remind people of that, sometimes that helps too. Um, as you get ready to go to the next person, have your hand ready so you can be close to them and there's not a big lag time. I can say one other thing. Um, so go ahead and go to the next person that's ready. Oh, you've got one? All right. We're supposed to raise your hand even though you have the mic. <laughs> Just messing with you. Um, one other thing that I will say is, is, you know, you come back to little things. Sometimes we've got clients and there's one that you and I both know that they really, 
they're maybe they're gaining a little bit of weight or they want to turn around and diet and you have to use the other things like pictures and clothes measurements and things of that nature so I, I've got a girl that's gained four pounds uh, five pounds over the last 20 weeks because I needed to reverse diet her up she needed she'd been dieting chronically for like two years and she was not in a good place and if you just look at the scale and they're most of the time most of us are looking at the scale because it's one of the tools that we use they start to freak out. So what do we do? Every four weeks, I have my client send me pictures. Well, she looks better with five more pounds on her than she did. She's eating instead of 1,100 calories, she's like at 1,700, right? And she looks better. So I had to have you know multiple heart-to-hearts with her and say, listen, you have to get the scale out of your head because you know she would come to me and she'd be like, I'm up. I want to diet. I'm like, no, you hired me to fix you, so we're not going to do that. Look at your pictures. And then I would send them back to her, and she's like, all right. Yeah, I've had to do that, too. Yeah, and it's not I'll like – like, old ones up because it's in my feed for function system. I'm like, right. here's your first one. Here's this one. Right. Scale means nothing. Like, oh, wow, I right. see it. And, so. and we've, all, we've, all got, we've all got clients like that, you know what I mean, that, that we've had to work with. There's nothing wrong with them. Like, they're just – you have to communicate. That's your job as a coach is to help keep them from going down the rabbit hole because that's a lot of times they will. I mean, I, that's why a lot of us – have used so many coaches before ourselves. Like we need that extra, that extra set of eyeballs. I mean, think about it when you're not now, I mean, you're so dialed in now, but you know, five years ago, the final weeks and the final four or five pounds, like it's a daily want to change something. If you're trying to diet yourself, yeah. it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. So that that's our job as coaches. Yeah. All right, Ryan. Uh, mine is on. So since we're talking physique enhancement, getting the most out of it for people, GDAs, can we use those like you would use insulin to push someone's physique higher than what they normally could do? Like if we're talking an natural athlete who's not going to pin with anything, we want to use a GDA supplement with their carb up meals or with all their carb meals in general, even just pre to get the same response we would out of insulin IU units. Can we use that? And then two, with GDAs affecting protein synthesis, could they use AMPK primarily? Is that going to affect their protein synthesis at all? You want to repeat the first one? Um, he was asking basically, can you use GDAs to mimic insulin, insulin use and get that kind of response? Extra, yeah, I mean, I can handle that. Yeah, one. yeah. Um, so a GDA is going to help carbs shuttle better to muscle. It will make you more insulin sensitive, but they are, you know, worlds apart in terms of results. So no, you are not going to get the same physiological response. Um, so yes, you'll get a little better pump. Um, I would use, you know, one pre, pre-workout. Um, you can even use two, you know, to get that shuttled better. But it, it's not going to mimic the results of, of insulin use. Yeah, I've, I've not seen much, hardly at all. I mean, there's nothing concrete as far as how they affect protein synthesis and the energy pathways and stuff like that. It's, and it's not something, I've seen way too many benefits with longevity and health and better insulin sensitivity and how that all ties into things like reducing, you know, heart attacks and heart disease and type three diabetes, you know what I mean? Which is, you know, like dementia and stuff like that. So, and they're anti-aging too. Right. I mean, you know, breaking down carbohydrates ages you, uh, that's glycation. And so, you know, by, slowing that process down, making it more efficient, you're just going to age slower. So there's a multitude of benefits, but I, I haven't really seen any literature on, on it really affecting protein synthesis by any means. But, um, you know, like uh, metformin, that will um, 
basically make sure that you're shuttling carbs to muscle tissue. The GDAs that are over the counter, they're not necessarily specific only to muscle tissue. It shuttles, but we might still be shuttling a little bit to fat. You go in that foreman direction, it's going right into the muscle. So as you step up, it gets more efficient. Yeah, a lot of people think of GDAs as like a bulletproof approach. Yeah. I mean, my GDA has fucking donuts on the front of it. Wesley designed it, put donuts and pizza on there. But here's the thing. If you're super carved up and you're eating like an asshole for three or four days and you keep taking a GDA with it, that what maybe is that GDA is just shuttling it to the fat cell faster, right? It's not a license to just eat whatever you want. So I, I want to point that out for our podcast listeners. And then the other thing too is with insulin, I, I did see, and I can't remember who posted it. There's, there's research out there showing insulin does not drive up protein synthesis at all. Like it doesn't. So like a lot of the, uh, there's, there's companies out there that promote you have to have this post-workout window where you have to have like dextrose after your workout with whey protein and all that. No, it stores as carbs better, but it doesn't do anything to drive up. No, isn't the, it like 20 grams of whey will start the process and right. just as well. Right. I mean, obviously that's not enough calories, but I mean, that's what the science showed. Right. So a lot of the times, like you hear stuff from companies, they're just trying to sell products. So it's, and it's, you know, that came out and was proven. So the big thing with, with carbs though, post-workout is they fuel the process of protein synthesis, but insulin doesn't turn it on. It doesn't fuel it. It doesn't expand it or anything like that. So it's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, you see some major growth from a lot of guys in the IFBB that are, that are doing their own. I mean, that's a whole separate topic and, and I don't get it from my side because I'm, I'm, I don't know, but it's, it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Who's got the next question? So I'd like to hear from both of you guys as an experienced, established coach, looking back to your beginner self, what would you tell yourself just to help with um, your clients with adherence? Okay, so I'm going to repeat that just in case you guys couldn't hear. Looking back to a younger version of ourselves, maybe 2008, Jason, 2009, John, what would we tell ourselves as coaches something that we look back on to help our clients with adherence. So I think maybe we tackle this from a bodybuilding prep standpoint and a gen pop standpoint, since a lot of our folks here have both. So what, what'd you struggle with, with adherence with clients back when you first started? Like what was the biggest issue that you saw? Well, you know, for me, I've, I've always been kind of lucky. Um, I've never had huge adherence issues with my clients. I, I don't know why I just haven't, maybe they were lying to me, but I've never had like, you know, I've had people that go out and, you know, have a free meal and they shouldn't, but I've never had like a situation where a lot of people just break down and, and go away from it. But what I can tell you is, is in early stages of my career, I was more rigid and, you know, he was talking about, you know, you got to build a plan that fits their lifestyle. And it, when I first started, it was like, no, it has to be this way. Your, your carbs are going to be in these meals. This is going to be this, this, and this is going to be, you're going to eat chicken here. And I was more rigid because I was rigid. And as I've grown in my bodybuilding and my physique enhancement, I realize that there's a lot of, I don't want to say liberties because you have to be consistent, but there's a lot of ways to do things. And it doesn't have to be chicken and rice and this and that at this meal. So I was building plans and putting together programs that were probably um, maybe a little too rigid that fit people's lifestyles. So you got to look at people's lifestyles and that'll help people stay adhering to it. But from day one, I worked with a lot of competitors 
at first, and so I always had a lot of adherence. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I talk to a lot of other coaches, and they say they have a lot of problems with people adhering to things. I just don't. I don't know if I draw a certain type of person or what, but I just don't have a lot of issues with I, it. I think I know what it is because from almost from the beginning, even though you had people eating very clean and strict, you had them counting their macros. They knew – how much protein, carbs, and fats to have, where when I first learned and I first started, you know, Mark kind of showed me a little bit, but before that, I was doing six ounces of chicken, an eight-ounce potato, you know, I wasn't necessarily, I was measuring, but I didn't count my protein, carbs, and fats, and I still think there's a lot of coaches to this day, maybe on your side of the fence Mm -hmm. and the assisted side, they're still sticking to a set meal plan and they don't they can loosely track their protein yeah, carbs they don't know and fats. what their macros are though no it's like a real loose ballpark figure and it's real clean eating and i think you draw people and they can count their macros and they kind of figure did. it out even when i built a diet everything was on there way way back yeah. yeah i i can say with adherence with me so from the i'll talk about the gen pop side um, the biggest thing with me was I did start off with meal plans. I actually was prepping people, even though I learned how to count macros, it was easier just to write the meal plans and just give them these meal plans, like very, very clean eating. Don't deviate. Don't add it. It was real big exclamation points. Don't deviate from the plan, right? Because this will work. That was always my thing. Um, but I had huge problems with adherence because what happens after you restrict yourself for a long time, like whether it's prep or your gen pop, if you eat perfectly clean for a long time and don't deviate and have other foods, not only going to develop issues with eating the same foods over a long time, you're going to binge eat. You're going to go and eat off the plan. And that's what I had problems with. So it was too rigid there. So I worked a lot with starting to implement flexible dieting. And even though I wrote a book on flexible dieting and stuff like that, I also abused the shit out of it. So I let my clients, as long as they counted their protein, carbs, and fats, that's why... You know, when Jason said Pop-Tarts the other day, like five of you turned and looked at me and smiled like Jason just took a, a rib at you. It kind of is because my clients were known for eat. I mean, the back of one of my shirts said Pop-Tarts plus pancakes equals shredded wheat. Like it was kind of a joke. But my people were getting on stage or losing a lot of weight eating garbage. So for a long time, I'm like, listen, eat what you want. Track your macros to a T. And I didn't know a lot about gut health or anything like that. But I knew my people were winning and they were doing well. So my point is, is I started to implement flexible dieting and get away from the strict, rigid uh, meal plans. And then since I went so far on the flexible dieting side, then I've started to kind of bring it back. And now I'm more of in the middle, eat as healthy as you can. I've been that way for the last five or six years. Eat as healthy as you can. Enjoy some treats here and there if you need that to help stick to your plan. And ultimately found kind of a middle, a middle road. But I think those extremes are just, if you have to get to stage, that's different. I mean, we, sometimes you have to do what you have to do to get to stage, but for most people or like bodybuilders in the off season, you got to have something like you have to be able to eat off plan a little bit, just try and track it. So that's, I wish I would have started that earlier. Yeah. Who's got the next question? Speak, speak up. Um, so for a client who has never tracked food before, uh, who's never weighed anything out, who might've just started eating intuitively. Like, what would you guys use to kind of transition them into tracking food, tracking macros, or is there any other methods that you guys would use to create structure? And also, um, as far as trans- transitioning into, like, the healing process, like healing your gut, um, how would you guys go about doing that? Okay, so I'll, I'll repeat the first one. So when someone comes to you, a client comes to you, 
and you just they haven't been tracking what methods do we use to help get them to track or what did we use back when we had a lot more of this to help help them learn how to track their macros i, I can take that one and start i think it goes and it's not just because we're fucking old sitting up here and we've been doing this for a long time but i think it goes without being said that if they will put pen to paper and look at food labels and just take the time to sit down and build a meal plan just one meal at a time build meal one 30 protein, 30 carbs, 10 fats. Just build that with the foods that you want, or here's a list of foods. It makes them look at the food label, right? And it makes them understand what goes into it. Because, I mean, these days you can use MyFitnessPal, and you can scan stuff with your phone, and you can do all that. But what if you get, you know, someone my age, I, you know, I don't ever use MyFitnessPal. What if you get someone like me or someone that's older that's just not real tech savvy? They don't want to have to mess with this. I have no problem writing something down and trying to get close, but it actually teaches somebody to look at a label to understand that. And like I said before, when I get clients, they're with me. So you either, you either figure it out and learn how to do it. Like they've got to want to do it. You can't hold their hand and just write diets all the time. You can, but you need to charge for it. That's why we've got Jacob Klesens. He's our, he's our RD. He writes all the diets because he's a dietitian. It's against the law of Missouri, so I'm not going to write it. So my clients, they have to figure it out. So I just tell them, like, listen, put pen to paper, and then I offer to look at it. I'm like, and then send me what you have. Let me look at it. I will help you, but I'm not going to put it together for them. So I think pen to paper is huge. Um, my fitness pal. Are you using the diabetic exchange to make it easier? Or are you having them look at like all like like oats have fat and protein? I have them count everything. Yeah. I have them just look at the label, count it all. Yeah, that's. That's what I do. There are other great. I know, I know you've got resources that you own, like Feed for Function. But what what about you? Back in the well, I back in the day, I mean, if someone was completely new, like you know, like never done it, I would start them off with a diabetic exchange. So that means whatever the main macro is, that's all you track. So if you're looking at a whey protein, it's got two carbs, it's got nineteen, uh, you know, protein. And one gram of fat, you don't worry about that trace pro carbon, and you just worry about the 19 grams of fat. That makes it a lot easier for them. And then you can start later on teaching them about how foods play off of each other and how they add. But here's the thing: that diabetic exchange works really well because even if they're a little high, you're going to just adjust and pull it down, and they're going to finally get into a fat burning zone, right? Um, so that was a good way for me. But I'll be honest with you: now I have coaches on my team. If someone's a newbie. I take them to them who, you know, might have a little more patience, and I work a little bit more with athletes who who have it, okay, who who have it already, know how to do it. But I used to use a diabetic exchange. I also just offered two plans. I had macros, and I had what I built it. But if they really wanted to save money and stay macros, I would use a diabetic exchange to start because it's super easy. You don't have to worry about the trace. You don't have to worry about how they're playing off each other. It's just you got three columns and you add it up. I mean, you know, and then it's like John said, put the pen to paper. <clears throat> Um, but now I have a feed for function app. And so literally I'm giving people some, a diet builder. So I just set up the macros and they literally can go in and pick their foods and it does all that interchanging calculating for you. It calculates the fat and the oats and all that. And so that's how I do it now. That's why I built that because it's a lot easier than me having to get on a call for an hour and talk about food labels, which I just don't want to do. Um, so I don't, there was a second part, um, yeah, what was your second question about healing? Um, so as far as like transitioning into like, that healing process, um, for Sunday life that's never had before, so I mean, once you got a comfortable uh, track on your macros or you know, light number 
Yeah, I mean, he he was just asking. <clears throat> so it's the same person. They're they're new to all this. Um, they don't know how to calculate macros really. How do you transition them into healing their gut? Um, you know, I mean, you could heal a gut without really tracking macros per se. You know what I mean? Like that's that everything I just went over: the low FODMAPs, getting the offending foods out, sleeping better, all those different things that we talked about. So I mean, you could technically give someone a list of low FODMAP foods and say, you know, eat. A portion of this and this of protein and carb and add a little fat I mean they're gonna do better because most of the people that are that new they're eating shit right they're eating terrible so you could heal a gut without tracking macros so I mean but you know once they're tracking their macros if you wanted to transition to that it's the same thing though you just give them the list of the low FODMAPs so I don't really think it has I don't really think they're like mutually like dependent on on one another to be honest with you um, you know I, like I said, I think you could heal it just knowing, give them a list. Like you could print off a list in your store. Here's low FODMAPs. Eat a fist of protein, a fist of carb, add 10 grams of fat per meal. I mean, they're going to do way better than they were just starting that and giving them something to help sleep. You know what I mean? So I really like that diabetic exchange. It's easy. That's the way I used that's to do so it. That's so simple. Like if yeah. you got – like here's the thing. If I were starting out as a coach, that would have been simple. That's why I used to do it when I yeah. – Yeah, you know, try and see someone that – Look, all the like interchanging. That yeah. was so hard. Yeah, if you're having if you're having whey and you're having oats, you got to take your whey down a little bit because oats have so right. much it protein. Right, it all plays in off it. each other. It's just yeah, too complicated. Yeah, much easier. Yeah, yeah. It, I think Skip Hill did that for a long time when I worked with him, and it was just so easy. And like I said, you might be wrong at first, but you're just going to keep adjusting until it's right. Right. And then they'll eventually be in a deficit. So. Yeah, I I think he used the analogy. It's like if you step on a scale, right? You step on if you know you weigh 215. But you start using a new scale and it says 220. Well, who cares? Just keep using the same scale. So it just if you're going to use the diabetic exchange, well, who cares? Just keep using that. Don't keep switch using it back. And as and you forth, adjust, so. you'll eventually get into a deficit. Yeah, I like it's a lot that. easier. And then you can teach them later how foods play off of each other. You know, by adding oats, the protein goes up. So now you got to pull your egg whites down some. And you know what I mean? Like it's just a lot at first. Yeah. Who's got the next question? Try and speak up loud into it if you can. I have a two-part question about. Time. Both are about timing. One was with SIBO. Um, you said it gets worse before it gets better. Yes. On average. Not always, but yes, it can on happen. On average, when you see that worse, how long does that last? For it's a good time? question. Usually about the first two to three weeks, and then you'll and then things will ease up. Headaches go away. Cramping goes away. Um, you know, all those different like maybe they they were having. Um, I've seen where they were constipated, and then now the stools start to be loose at first. So it's like great, I'm going at least, but it's it's not you know quite there yet because everything's not balanced. You might see that, but it's about the first two to three weeks that that would happen. But it doesn't happen to everyone. I have plenty of clients that are like, I feel amazing already. Like you know, not amazing, but they're already improved in week one. You know what I mean? It's just you wanna you wanna under promise and always over deliver in anything that you do in a service industry. The second question was about um, metabolism turnaround. So when you're prepping somebody for 12 weeks or 20 weeks and, you know, competitors, they, they want to do a national show, they want to go pro or whatever, and they want to do those back-to-back -back shows, how many back-to-back -back shows before you're like, hey, listen, like, we need to, your metabolism is going to go to shit. Like, you're, you're two, three, four shows in. Like, how, how do you deal with that? Tell what you just said. Yeah, I, mean, uh, yeah, I mean, that's I perfect. Mean, natural know, natural are, versus Are we talking enhanced. about a natural or, or an enhanced person? Okay. Do you want to start? Yeah. So with the natural person, like a lot of people, you know, that I have no problems peaking people 
in multiple shows and I can tell you where I've ran into trouble or I've had no issues. So if someone's got three shows over the course of four weeks, not a big deal. No, I agree. No, you can feed them up. You can reverse them up into shows. They at least will feel better. They're not doing so much cardio, but I've done that. So in our world, like especially like the IPE and the NAMBF are big around here. Most of my clients compete there. If they want to do like the pro shows or whatever in the, in the fall, the world championships was always in November, middle of November. And there was a big show in Kansas city. So a lot of people were trying to like do shows in September, qualify for worlds and then hang on to that conditioning from September to November. And even if they did some shows in between, I could feed them up. I can get them there. Um, I have a lot of people that did well doing that, but labs, labs came back like, Four months, five months after the show, they did not look good. They didn't, not all of them looked as good at Worlds as they did prior because what happens? You're still super lean. You're still, you're still, um, cortisol still going to be somewhat high. You don't feel good whenever you're that lean. So I've seen it start to run into problems when you start to get past, like I would, if I had to put a week on it, I'd say probably past six weeks for naturals. Like it just starts to become hard. But then you look at the other flip side of the coin, it's a totally different ball game. Yeah, I mean, if someone's enhanced, think about it. Like, their hormone profile's not dipping. Um, a lot of people, you know, throwing something to keep thyroid running, um, you know, at that point. Um, cortisol stays low because that's what enhancements do. Um, testosterone is in a good range. Cortisol is going to be less. Um, it keeps it down. Testosterone dips. Cortisol, at times, starts to rise. Um, so, in that situation, as long as someone mentally can hang on, I mean, you can run the whole pro circuit if you want. You know what I mean? And so, because you don't have all these down regulations. Um, it, you know, there, there still could be issues, you know, that you got to deal with in terms of digestion because there's still some stress. But a lot of times it, it's, it's a different ball ballgame um, for, for the two type of competitors. And where I've seen a lot of natural competitors get into trouble um, or coaches that don't really get it, like you see that on the IFBB Pro stage or then the the uh, like upper national level stage, you see people doing spring and fall shows. Like yesterday, I think I said something about doing the Arnold in March and then you know doing the Olympia in the in the fall, and that was kind of a common thing. Well, when you when you can take care of your hormones and just run those the way that you want to do it, that's one thing. But if you're natural and you grow up seeing that or you grow into the sport seeing that, you read the magazines and you're just, you're oblivious because you don't get you it. You think you just crush you, your body. Yeah. Going, you think, well, they're doing it. That's I'm what I want to do. I'm going to do 10 shows over 10 months. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and then that's where we see, that's why it comes back to what you always say. Natural women get hit the hardest, then natural men, and then you move into the assisted side. So, yeah. Yeah, it's good to differentiate the two. But for naturals, I would say no longer than six weeks, eight max. Like if it's super important to go two more weeks to get to the world championship or something. But if someone's just wanting to get on stage, like get your stuff done in a and short window. Have them all back to, yeah. back to back or two weeks separated, I agree. Yeah. Yep. Good question. Who's got the next one? Um, so I know of a few people that have this issue, but I'll just use myself as an example because I have been through your whole SIBO uh, protocol with you. And I see, I always see like the recommended fiber intake and I still have, like even with psyllium husk and vegetables, I'm in like a lot of pain if I consume a, like the normal amount of fiber. Is that something that's indicative of an issue I still have going on or is that just kind of how my body is? But I have a really hard time with vegetables and any yeah. kind of fiber supplement. Yeah. So the question was, um, 
she's had her gut rebuilt. Um, most things are okay, but she cannot get to the recommended amount of fiber. So my question back to you is, and I think on your reports it is, but you're regular, correct? Most of the time. Yeah. So, you know, in that situation, um, to get fiber higher, I might try like a Kai, like more gourmet greens, things like that. Selenium husk may just not be working well for you to get there. Um, but technically, yeah, like you should be able to eat 25 to 30 grams of fiber. So, you know, we might need to go back in and, you know, run some more gut defender or something along those lines because fiber does feed the good bacteria too. And so if you can't tolerate that, um, that's an issue. If you're regular though, daily, uh, stools aren't runny, they're not too hard and all that, then I just let it roll. Like that's sometimes just that person. Um, because those are just ranges, right? I mean, that's not, you know, there's always outliers. Um, but we can delve into that more, but yeah, technically you should be able to at least take in around that amount of fiber. I, I do have one question that, that was sent to me by somebody that couldn't make it. So I thought, you know what, we'll go ahead and get this on the podcast. Um, their question is, well, their statement is I'm having trouble picking a name for my coaching business. All right. They're just getting started. How important is it to pick the right name? I've gone over this over and over and over. I'm not going to say who it is. I, well, I should, I should bust her out, but like just to have fun with it. But she said, I've gone over and over and I just can't pick anything. And I thought, you know what, this is a great discussion to have because, you know, most of us in here are coaches. You never know what you're going to do down the road. You might launch another company or, or do a seminar or whatever, or write a book or supplements. How important is the name? So I figured I would I would kick this off because sometimes it makes a lot of sense. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. So I know so many people get so caught up on the name has to be a big deal. Um, but prior company that I was with was First Form. Like, what the hell is First Form? Nobody knows. But it's this gigantic company that makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year now. It's not about – it wasn't never about their name. Like, no one knows what First Form is. I still don't know why it is. And I should have known. I should have asked them. Um, what the hell is Scooby Prep? It doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? It's what you built. It's what it stands for. Well, I did it because it's memorable. Right. Well, yeah. So, yeah. I talk think there is that. some name, important in name. Yeah, so, so talk um, about that. Talk about like Scooby It doesn't have Prep. to mean anything. I mean, let's think about – uh, you know, I'll put my lawyer hat on for a minute. Let's think of Apple. Apple, I mean, it's the name of a computer. It means nothing, but everyone knows Apple. Right. Um, so I think a unique name is important. Um, I think branding's highly important. I think that once you pick a name, you better check that you can get the .com as well. People don't do that. So then they put it out into the IG world. They don't have a website, and now they can't go get the domain for their brand. So I think all of it is important. I think it should be done in steps. Um, I think it should be unique, and I think it should be memorable, but I think it should uh, relay what kind of what your message is. Mine doesn't really. It was just a nickname of mine. Right. Um, but if you can relay a message, I think that's important. But it's not certainly going to be an end-all, be-all that can you be successful if it's not – Right. catchy but um i think if if you can get there on that i think i think it is some of the best brands that we know have are just off the wall uh names right shit. you know what i mean um so that's my take on it yeah i mean i think i think you bring up a good point is make sure that you have the ability to get the website to be able to make sure must. if it needs to be marked i mean you actually when you were still a lawyer you yeah. did fat muscles for me you I know, did the uh, trademark for you. Right, yeah. right. And now I've had to take it a little bit farther because it's supplements, but it's one of those things. And that name kind of does make sense, like Fat Muscle Project. I mean, that kind of made sense, but 
we could have like Team Gorman. But it's memorable, right? Know? Right, and that's right. what I'm getting at. Yeah, um, but yeah, like Team Gorman, and you know, there's other with Team. So, yeah. it, and you're doing great. So. Yeah, it's it stands for something. It's it's really kind of what it stands for. So I don't yeah. necessarily get hung up on the name, but you make a great point. Yeah. You might pick a name that you can't end up doing anything with besides something small. Check your .com and buy it. Yeah, you don't have to develop point. it, but just buy it. A lot of people don't do that. Yeah. Who's got uh, Who's got the next question? Dealing with the gut health, IBS, SIBO, different things like that, how does, how does that affect glucose levels? And, and, and seeing, is there some kind of a thing that, you know, keeps those levels high. Yeah. Can you repeat that? Oh. So the question was, um, if someone has SIBO or leaky gut or even just, you know, poor poor um, uh, digestion, how does it affect uh, insulin sensitivity or, or glucose, as he put it? Um, so we know that inflammation in the body affects insulin sensitivity. Okay? And so most of these gut problems are, are inflammation of the lining. Um, so that's, that's a problem. Also, there's malabsorption of nutrients. So, you know, that's an issue. So it's not favorable to insulin sensitivity to have a poor gut and to be inflamed in, inside, you know, your body. So it does drive it up over time. Next question. Yep. I got another one on, so dealing with a lot of female clients, gen pop and then competitors, on birth control, are there ways to kind of negate some of those negative side effects that we kind of see with that, or are we going to start running into negating the actual birth control itself? Then, you want me to handle that? Yep. So the question is, if someone's on birth control and they want to stay on birth control, are there things that we can do uh, to kind of curtail some of the negative effects of being on it long term? So. Um, this is a conversation I have a lot um, with females because they'll send me their blood work and 99% of the time on birth control, they're estrogen dominant. Um, that's literally what it does. That's how it basically prevents pregnancy. Doctors don't explain that. Um, I bet if more women knew that they were going to be more prone to putting on fat in their butt and their hips and their lower belly, they probably would not take it. Um, but it creates an estrogen dominant situation and that's what leads a lot of times to SIBO later in, in line. So how do we come combat that? So if you take Chase Berry and Estracort, our Estracort, or let's just say DIM, DIM is an estrogen metabolizer, you could negate the, the birth control because you're bringing progesterone up and you're bringing estradiol up. And I'm sorry, you're, bring, you're metabolizing the estrogen, bringing estrogen dominance down. So what we do and what I do is I just use our Estracort, but I don't touch the progesterone. That's just going to stay low. But what I'm doing there is I'm at least – you're not going to get rid of the total estrogen dominance because that progesterone is just going to still stay low. And it's a true ratio between progesterone and estradiol. Okay, That's what determines estrogen dominance. I talked about that in my presentation. So, But by improving estrogen metabolism out of the liver, you're going to bring down some of those side effects of being really estrogen dominant, and you will see less um, water held, and they will burn fat a little better. But yeah, don't go, you know, using Chase Berry or, you know, I use a, um, a Progon B um, is the uh, progesterone uh, bioidentical that I use. And uh, I don't use any of that if someone wants to stay on their birth control. You know, a recommendation I make a lot of times, and, and until you learn a lot of this, I, I would never tell you guys to pull someone off birth control until you, if, but when I do it, um, if they'll take like a copper IUD, 
that's non-hormonal. And then I can use chase berry and I can use estracort and I can fix the estrogen dominance and get everything back. But the problem with birth control I also see is over time it drives down testosterone too. So you see a woman on, I my cousin came to me, uh, she's 27, she's healthier than most people, played college soccer, couldn't lose weight, save her life. She sent me her labs and she literally was like basically premenopausal. Like her testosterone was like 11, progesterone 0.1, estradiol 5. Uh, that's that's terrible for bone health. Um, so I pulled her off it, got her on Chase Berry, Estracort, and now she's losing weight r really well. Um, but it's because she just had no hormones at all. And we see that a lot with long-term birth control. She had been on it since like 18, she's 29. So, um, but yeah, it's a good point. Like don't go fixing it completely because uh, they could get pregnant. And then when I fix, help, you know, fix people, I remind them like, you're going to be fertile now. I've had like five people get pregnant who really didn't want to be pregnant at that point in time. And I'm like, well, you knew we were fixing your hormones and you're having a period now. Like, what were you, what were you thinking? <laughs> but, um, so yeah, uh, now I just give a warning, like, uh, you know, be a little smarter about it. You are going to be fertile at some point here. But so. that, that brings another question up that I'll throw up there. We were talking about it the other day, but for guys, guys on HRT, they, they, you know, you hear a lot of the times, you know, I'm going to be sterile. I'm not going to be able to have kids or stuff like that. Oh. I mean, I know a guy that had a kid that was, that was on HRT um, how possible is it? Do, do 10%, guys need to... 10% of us do not uh, get shut down. Yeah. yeah. You're one of those. Yeah, I am. Yep. So I, I had to go the vasectomy route. Yeah. 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 So it's not it's not 100% bulletproof mm -hmm. no, or anything. Don't like rely that. on that. Yeah. No. Yeah. Just just so you know. Okay. A couple more questions and then we're going to shut it down. Uh, I have a question. So I'm not a coach. And I don't want to put the money into becoming a certified coach if I can just come to these classes. What do you think about that? So I think I asked you to ask that the other day. I, I've got I've used you as an example at other conferences, and I don't think I've ever told you this. But you know, do you need to become certified as a coach? Do you need a degree to be able to become a coach? You need an exercise science degree? Do you need all these different things? And here's the thing. I, here's my take, and I'll be interested to hear what you think about it. Um, how many people in here right now know that I have a master's degree? Raise your hand. Okay. How many people know what it's in? Nobody. How many? Leslie, quiet. How many people give a shit what my master's degree is in? No one cares. If you cared that much, I would love for you to help me with the 120 grand that I have in debt for a degree that I don't need to sit up here and be a coach, right? How many people give a shit that Jason was a lawyer and had that? That's your degree. You see what I'm saying? Like I use you as an example all the time. A friend of mine, Brian Teach, his degree is in turf grass management. I shit you not. Right? I was at a first form conference talking turf about this. So turf grass like management. Baseball team or something? I don't know. Like he's like <laughs> worked for an FL team. That was that was his. The guy's a great coach, but it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? Because to me, in this day and age, you don't necessarily to do what we're doing here, right? You don't necessarily have to go to college. You don't have to do that, but you still need to get educated. In this day and age, you've got YouTube, you've got podcasts, you've got seminars and conferences like the ones that we do, the Zoom classes, um, Nutridine conferences, like all these different things. You can educate yourself 
You don't have to go to school. You don't have to get a certain certification. But if you're someone that if you want to work in the research realm or if you want to teach or you want a job that demands that kind of either some kind of certifications like some gyms, you have to have certain certifications to work at. Or if you want to work somewhere as a teacher or something, you have to have that. So in that case, yes. But in our world to do what we do, and that's also opened the door for everybody just to fucking become a coach and try and jump in and do it. Uh, we're weeding out some, not we, but the industry is weeding out the ones that just don't have the chops. But that's kind of my take on it because no one, no one gives a shit that you're a lawyer. No, they don't care. They care about your, I mean, how much you know. I mean, look at the gut health presentation, right? You went to conferences, you learned all this stuff. You didn't go to college for that. No, I went to a 48-hour uh, Nutridyne conference on that one. It was taught by a functional medicine doctor. It was really awesome. Um, but I had to fly to Minnesota like five times in the winter, which just sucks. Uh, no offense if anyone's from Minnesota. Um, but I do have an AFPA nutrition consultant uh, license. Um, I think it's nice just to be able to put on my Instagram. You know, there are a few people out there who want you to have a certification, but I'll be honest with you, um, I didn't learn shit from it. Like, I don't apply anything from that. Not a drop. Um, but I have it, okay? Uh, I also carry insurance. I also have an LLC shed set up. Like, I just, I'm just organized like that. Um, I think that John is 100% right, though. It's about your knowledge base. And if you keep getting educated, you put out good work, and you build that, it doesn't really matter. But I wanted to have it, and I think that as we move forward and the industry does keep getting more crammed, um, it will carry weight. But you could certainly make a six-figure living in doing this and not need a certification. Good question. Okay. I am a CrossFit coach, so I don't have one-on-one clients. It's just kind of a large, large base. So it's like a forty-five minutes before class or after class. It's like being like a triage doctor and over here, a psychologist. You have to answer questions, and then you may not ever have wanting to care for your clients is, you know, is still there, whether it's 30 one-on-ones or, or, or one-on-ones. So what would you say is the best piece of advice, maybe or two or three quick pieces of advice that I could give my people about recovery for what we do? Because it does kind of wreck your body. It's, it messes with your cortisol. Uh, it's just physically hard on you in, in many levels. Okay, so the question is, this, this comes from, she's a CrossFit coach. She's got groups that she teaches. What are some tips that we can give people um, with recovery and health and stuff like that? So, Jason, if you want to just kind of, because I'm going to catch hell at home because Leslie's a CrossFitter, so I'm going to let you talk about how rough CrossFit is on people um, to kind of paint the picture, and then we'll talk about how to kind of help people heal up from it. Well, you know, nothing against CrossFit. I mean, I think it's great for people like that love the team environment and all that. So uh, I don't want to bash that in any way just you're right though the 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 structure of it is very intense and very tough on the body so um obviously we talked about this yesterday like make sure that they're not eating paleo like it's a very glycogen driven um ordeal and to eat you know a paleo diet makes absolutely no sense unless someone was highly endomorphic and came you know into the box and they were fat and overweight um, so one is getting the diet right with carbs. They are not the enemy in, in CrossFit. 
Number two, um, simply doing like an intra workout shake with carbs in it will help them too. That's going to keep cortisol down um, and speed up recovery. Um, you can throw some BCAAs or EAAs in that. Science shows EAAs are better now. Um, so that's a few things. And then, you know, it's like anything else. Don't overtrain it. Like, you know, if you're someone who doesn't recover well, do four days. Don't do six. Um, so those are simple things that you can work on someone with. Are there, is their sleep good? You know, you can work on that with them. Um, I don't think it's one of those things where they got to throw a lot of supplementation. I think it's just periodizing the training. You know, if they have to overreach to get ready for like one of the games or something and they're going six days a week, well, make sure then afterwards they understand that they need to back off to four. You know, those types of things. You can help them understand that. Um, but I think making sure that their diet is high in carbohydrates for their needs. Um, intro shake, which I don't know if that's made it to the CrossFit realm yet, but that would really help keep cortisol down and recover. And then, you know, they can do things like Arcordies at night to improve sleep and get to, you know, keep the cortisol down if it's still spiking. Um, but I really think like if, you know, more is put into good digestion, good sleep, um, you know, all those different patterns and then just a proper diet with it and enough caloric intake, you're not, you know, you won't necessarily out train your diet if, um, if you got enough calories in it. So it's really making sure that they're, they're getting that nutrition, right? Um, that's, that's where I start and I, it's a performance driven field. Um, they want you know, y'all want to look good too, but like it's more performance driven than say like going in and bodybuilding. So I make sure that there's plenty of food to fuel the process and go from there. So, yeah, I, the one thing that I see people get into trouble with in that world is they'll do a CrossFit workout and then they'll go and do extra after like, Oh, because it, it, most of us in this room, they're going to go do some extra, you know, bodybuilding stuff, you call it accessories, you can call it whatever you want and that's fine, but they end up doing it too much. So they're doing Jason, why are you laughing? Cause you're sitting next to Leslie. Why I say this, um, <laughs> I'm going to get so much shit for this, but no, this isn't Leslie. Leslie's really good with this, but a lot of people do too much. They're doing tons of CrossFit. They're, then they're going and they're training shoulders and back afterwards and they're doing all this different stuff. And I think just from going to a few events, and I'm not a CrossFit expert. I still think they're not, I mean, bodybuilding supplementation has been around a long time. That's why you said the intra drinks, not, I don't know if it's no. there, but it would really help. And it's simple. no, because they're moving so fast for you know twenty thirty minutes. But I did it for a month. You can certainly have a Gatorade right. or, or slam ground. it right before, or have oh, something heavy, but, or, you know, yeah. right before. I, I don't see a lot of people like whenever I go to events. I don't see a, a lot of people taking creatine, and they might be taking it. But that, in my mind, maybe they're just not where we are as bodybuilders yet. So you know, making sure there's a good multivitamin in there, making sure they're taking creatine for performance and, and stuff like that. And a lot of that comes back to diet too. So yeah, I just, I just think bodybuilding, we're just more advanced when it comes to recovery and healing because we've been around for a long time. And I think CrossFit will get there. Um, I think it's pretty cool. I really do. I've never done it before in my life. I don't ever plan on doing it, but if someone wants to be in shape and if they manage it the right way, um, I really do think it's good. I, mean, I did it for a month, but it was five years ago, and, and Pele was really big, and I was, you know, trying to tell everyone that would ask me, right? Like, yeah, this is a glycogen. This is a glycogen-driven yeah. endeavor. You need carbs. Yeah. Not high fat and protein. Yeah. 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 I just think a lot of people just don't know. Like they don't know. They just think I'm just going to push. And then you see the elite CrossFitters. It's kind of like we see in the bodybuilding world. We see the elite bodybuilders doing this with elite genetics or maybe they have the elite medicine cabinet or whatever. Then you see some of the elite CrossFitters and they're training 
twice a day or whatever leading up to an event. Well, they also have elite recovery and stuff like not all of us are that way. Like we all recover different too. Like we're, we're just not all the same. So it's got to be very individualized. And I, it, powerlifting's the same way. Like it's all, it's all an art form. I think if training's periodized, you know, um, when you yeah. get ready for, when you're trying to qualify for an event, if you got to go six days, do it. But then know that you should come back to four. You know, those types of things are being taught will help. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we got time for one more. So mine is a little bit personal, but um, so I know I can't be the only competitor that's still going through this. You guys talk about dieting, and so I've been in prep, and I emailed Jason about this before for two years. I've never had anything over fifteen hundred calories. And oh, yeah, we did talk. After talking to you via email, you know, the more I thought about it mentally. I need to come out. But what is that going to look like? What does that look like for somebody like me that's been in prep for so long? Am I going to gain 100 pounds? You know, I know that sounds silly. No, it's not silly. I know I'm not the only competitor that's going through this. Yeah. And other coaches, like, yeah. I am to the T. Like, I, tell, I do everything she says. But what is a reverse going to look like for me? And how is that for you guys taking someone on like me? Is that horrifying? I'm going to repeat it. Yeah. So j- just in case our listeners didn't, didn't catch that um, – this lady's been in prep, basically dieting for two years. You've never been over 1,500 calories. What does that reverse look like? Are you going to gain a lot of weight? Like, what do we see as coaches? Uh, we've been doing this for a long time. She's already emailed you, so you you kind of kick this off, and then I'm going to go back to the example that I talked about earlier. So go ahead. I mean, being on that low of calories, um, I'm sure cardio has at least been high at some point. Two hours a day. For two years? How much? How much cardio a day? So I'm going to make hours. you fill out my MSQ if you're a client. It's probably going to be over 50, and that's going to signify that I have to get labs from you. And the, the reason I do that is because then I'll find out what functions are off from you, whether it's your thyroid, your estrogen dominant, your progesterone's low, you know, all these different things. Maybe your CRP, which is inflammatory markers off. So I'm going to fix all that while I feed you up, and you're not going to gain as much weight. If you just try to reverse – and you don't look at the functions that are off, yeah, you're you're gonna you're gonna gain some weight. But I usually do pretty damn good at not putting on a ton of weight on my people. But it's because I start with lab work and I know what's wrong, and then I supplement that to support and bring that up, basically like almost like a a false positive because I'm using supplements. But that allows me then to get the food in you, which is going to support healing, so then I can pull the supplements out later. But if you don't bring up the functions, yeah, you're gonna gain a lot of weight. Yeah, and it, from my standpoint, it goes back to what I talked about on a couple of my presentations. The longer you stay lower calorie, the easier it is to gain fat because your metabolic rate's slower. So when you do go eat off plan, because we're all going to eat off plan, when you do, do go eat off plan, it's going to stick to you. But then your metabolism slow, so it's going to be really hard to burn it off. So it's not like you can drop calories to burn it off. And that's why I see it year after year. I see more people, predominantly women, it's, they just gain more fat year after year by trying to stay low calorie. It's not your fault or any of our faults. Like we think about it from a mass standpoint, and we were all taught that 20, 30 years ago. Like you want to lose weight? Just don't eat as much. Well, no, not necessarily. So there's nothing wrong with that, and it's a very real, real fear. So if you came to me, I mean, obviously that was that was perfect. You, know, you need to look at labs. Um, with me, I'm going to hold your calories where they are, and I'm just going to drop 100% of your steady state and just watch to see what happens as long as you stick to your diet perfectly, 1,500 calories or wherever you're at. And I'm just going to watch cortisol drop 
And I haven't seen someone just start gaining weight when they drop their steady state. I 100% of the time see them all drop. It's mostly water. They feel better. And then I slowly start adding calories in dependent on the person. And then it comes back to adherence. Like how many calories can I add? How much are you adding on your own if you're eating off plan? Because most people are going to eat off plan here and there. So it's, that's where it kind of becomes a, an art form. But to me, the steady state being at two hours, your body is so acclimated to that that it's almost like you're adding food, actually. So you drop, you're burning those calories. So say you burn, I don't, I don't know how much calories that is. Say it's 200 calories you're burning a day. Well, instead of adding food, let's just drop that so your body doesn't have to recover from it. But then it's almost like you're adding 200 calories to your, to your body, to your system. But then cortisol drops and stuff like that. Um, if someone fights me on that, they're like, I can't drop that much that fast. Well, then I'm going to whittle them down. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to whittle it down. Well, let's, let's move to an hour a day, you know, or 30 minutes twice a day or whatever it is. And I've never seen a problem with dropping the steady state that much as long as they stick to the diet. So um, as far as weight gain over time, um, you know, it depends on the person. But, yeah, most of the time it's going to take when you've been that long – you're going to have to accept some weight gain. You're probably not going to, like in the presentation I gave, you're probably not going to drop a bunch of weight as you increase calories if you've been gone that long. Now, if it does happen and it could, that's great. That's That would be the unicorn stuff. Like that's that's what we see. Um, but it may not happen if you've been there that long. Yeah. Tough, tough situation. Okay. I Let's see what time is it. We've got 12.45. We've got time for one more, one more, and then we need to wrap it up because you got to get out. Yeah. yeah and, you, and you've got plenty of time. So no, I know. I one, one more question. Okay. Speak loud into the microphone there. So when you were talking about, um, you, with someone that has SIBO, you run that that diet for eight to 10 weeks before you start adding food slowly back. The FODMAP's back. Yes, sir. Yeah. So earlier on in the presentation, we were talking about uh, acid reflux doing the same thing. Do you still aim for that same eight to 10 weeks before you add food, or is it a smaller window because it's just acid reflux? Well, so in the acid reflux, we're pulling down the FODMAPs just purely for inflammation. Um, when we're doing it in SIBO, it's to not feed the bad bacteria as well. So there's not that component yet in the acid reflux. So I'm not as necessary to get back the low FOD, or the FODMAPs. But, yeah, I mean, if someone's feeling good after eight weeks or something, I want to get their diet diverse again and get that back in. But I just want you to understand that the reason we're going low FODMAP in the, in the reflux is for um, inflammation purposes. And in the SIBO is for inflammation, but also because the FODMAPs do feed the bacteria it feeds good and bad and the bad are usually quicker than the than the good unfortunately right. that's why you don't go keto if you go keto with some of SIBO they feel better because none of them are getting fed as much but when you put the cars back in the opportunistic bugs are usually more aggressive and better at getting to it and then it's full-blown shit show but so I just want to understand why we used that in each different situation but yeah like once they're feeling good Sure, put some FODMAPs back in for sure. And, you know, they, you can do that at six weeks. You could do it at five as long as they're, all the, they're asymptomatic. But for SIBO, I usually wait about eight weeks. Okay. I, I want to jump right back to this, the question we had right before. So yeah. back, back to your question with the low calories for years and the cardio. Whenever I said, you know, he talked about labs. Remember in my presentation, I said there is a way that you can reverse diet up and continue to lose weight. And the only time I've seen that not work a lot 
is diet adherence, which if you have that, or if hormones are out of whack. So I automatically thought, well, because we talked about hormones. So in that situation, yes, you're probably going to gain if, if hormones are out of whack. If everything comes back okay, then you reverse. You might be able to keep dropping. Like you might be able to drop, but the systems have to be online, and that's why that was so important. Like that to me is – Number one, that's like the number check. one thing to look at at that point. Yeah, I mean, so. if she filled out my MSQ and she's like a twenty, uh, you know, I'm like, eh, yeah. Well, if you don't want to pay for labs, that's cool. Yeah. It's just, but how if, long would I have to reverse? Is the how, how long would she have to reverse? Is the question, and the reason why I came back to this is depends the issues. I, for me, it would. I mean, you know, uh, other coaches do it other ways. They don't really look at all that. Um, but for me, it's it. And I don't need perfect labs, just so everyone knows. I just need asymptomatic. And if you have no issues, no estrogen dominance, you don't have bloating, you don't have all that, and your labs come back good, like John said, then you know you can start 10 carbon you and pulling. I wouldn't pull cardio down as quickly as he does, but I'd start 10 carbon you per week and maybe pulling down 10 to 15 lists as I went. But 9 out of 10, what I know, 2 years, 2 hours of cardio, 1,500 calories, that's, uh, that's rough. Um, yeah. And so um, I'm going to guess there's some things that need to be fixed. And if I supported those as we did it, you would gain a lot less weight. Yeah. I want to come back to that because I didn't want to – whenever I said you're probably getting – I didn't want to make you feel like you're helpless because no, there is a situation I, where you It could, all can be fixed. It's just hard when you've had a coach and you're doing what you're Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's just yeah. – Yeah, I mean, in two years if someone's not getting lean, I mean, the, the coach has to know that we got to do something else. Yeah, yeah i i would I would talk to your coach and be like, "Hey, listen, like this is going on." Well, listen, I'm not trying to say, but maybe you need to find yeah. another coach. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. So. All right. Well, this has been a fun weekend, man. We've Definitely. got a whole bunch of people. We're gonna we're gonna sit and talk shop with them a little bit for another 10, 15 minutes. I'm gonna be out pretty out. quick though for my flight. I gotta grab lunch and get to the airport. All right, so we really appreciate all you guys and girls here in attendance, everyone listening here to the show. Jason's got to eat. He's getting hangry. For myself and Jason, we're out of here. Thanks, guys. See you guys.